You know, the best of all stories are usually made up of answers to the biggest questions of all. Who, what, when, where, and perhaps most especially, the question why. This year, in our Christmas series here at Trinity, I'd like to direct our collective attention to that last and most crucial of all questions, the why of Christmas. Why did the Lord Jesus Christ actually come to earth some 2,000 years ago? We're going to put away the nativity scenes, the characters, we're going to, we're going to put away the shepherds and the wise men, and we're going to focus on the meaning of the manger. What did Jesus, in fact, come to do at Christmas? And why exactly was it necessary for God's unique baby boy to be born and then to die years later for you and I? Well, I've entitled our special Advent series this year, The Mission of the Manger. Five big reasons why Jesus Christ came to earth at Christmas. And friends, each Sunday, starting today and finishing up, in fact, on Christmas morning itself, and note a special start time of 10 a.m., moms and dads, you'll be happy about that. We're going to be honing in on a different reason, week in and week out, straight from Jesus' own lips as to why he came to earth so many years ago. Again, the why behind Christmas. And we're actually going to walk through these canonically. That is to say, we're going to begin in Matthew, and I'm going to select one reason out of each of the four gospel accounts and two from the gospel of John. And so, I hope you have your Bibles open with me. We're going to begin this morning over in the fifth chapter of the very first gospel. That is the New Testament book of Matthew, where our brother Brad read from us just moments ago, where we are told this morning, once again, by Christ himself, that one of the really big reasons why he came to earth was in fact not to do something, not to destroy, not to abolish the law and the prophets, but instead he came to do what only he could do. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the least stroke of a pen in the sacred scriptures, in other words, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Thanks be to God for his holy and inerrant and always trustworthy and reliable word. Listen, the story of Christmas, from one perspective, is quite simple. From one important perspective this morning, Christmas is all about how God, and particularly how God in Christ, how God in the incarnation, the stepping into human flesh in the person and work of Jesus Christ, 
through the coming of the holy and completely sinless Son of God, Christmas is about how God himself has kept his word. How God himself has kept his promise to provide that one thing, that one thing that you and I so desperately need in life, but we are so utterly devoid of. What is it? Don't you love getting those functional Christmas presents? Not the fun. I like to say I put the fun and functional with my gifts at Christmas. You know, not socks or undergarments as I remember getting these. We used to call these yuckies in our family. Oh, these are yuckies. What did we need? We needed righteousness. That is what Christ has come to give. The gift of Christ's own perfect righteousness. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that we are to strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without it no one will see the Lord. Christmas is about a gift that you and I so desperately needed and that gift is holiness but someone else's holiness, someone else's righteousness. No Christmas, no righteousness, no righteousness no peace, no peace with God. Again, the first of five reasons this Advent season that I hope that you will record and you will take to heart is that Jesus Christ came to fill up, to fill up the righteous requirements of God's perfect and holy law on your behalf and mine. God made him, the Bible says, who knew no sin to be a sin offering for us in order that we might by faith become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. What a gospel. Christmas is about God making Scrooges into sons. God making miserable men in the misery of our sin and rebellion, making us full again making us truly happy, truly content in what God himself is all about. This is what Paul would later put so perfectly in his letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 and following says this, This, that is, the fact that this righteousness of God had been manifested apart from the attempt to keep the law on your own, Although the law and the prophets itself bear witness to it, this righteousness that is through the gospel and is received by faith, Paul says this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christmas ultimately answers that age-old riddle, how can a holy God be with a sinful race of men? The answer is in a person. The answer is in Jesus. We sinful and utterly unrighteous human beings, apart from God's grace, needed somebody like us, though somebody far different from us, to finally and fully make us right with God. And that's just what Jesus did, friends. We needed what the great German reformer Martin Luther called an alien 
righteousness. The fact is so many of us are seeking a righteousness of our own in wealth, in works, in relationships, but we need a different and all the more superior sort of righteousness, and that righteousness is Christ's righteousness. Now, one of my favorite Christmas carols is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I love that carol. We'll sing it many times this year, I'm sure. Right, Brian? (laughs) Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. What does it say next? Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Man, does that not just nail Christmas? Romans 8 verses 3 and 4 actually are a hyperlink to Matthew 5 verse 17. Romans 8 3 says this. (laughs) This is awesome. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Do you see it? That's the gift of righteousness in Christ, in His incarnation. Romans chapter 10, verse 4, wonderfully announces, For Christ is the end. That is, Christ is the point Christ is the culmination. He is the fulfillment of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Note that verse, friend. Praise God for the gift of true righteousness and true holiness wrapped up in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger at Christmas. Now, back to Matthew just for a few moments this morning. The book of Matthew in particular presents Jesus Christ, the unique God-man, and his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection from the dead on the third day as the very fulfillment of the Old Testament. The word fulfillment is a key word in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew is uniquely, you might say, a Jewish gospel. There are as many as 68 direct references and allusions to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Gospel of Matthew alone. There is a distinct Jewish flavor to Matthew's presentation of the coming of Jesus Christ and His work for us. Now what's more, the Gospel writer Matthew very strategically uses a a little Greek verb, pleruo, which simply means to fill up, to come to completion, to carry out, to level up even, for those of you that are gamers out there, to to perform no fewer than a dozen times. Matthew uses that term strategically throughout his gospel. And he uses it in connection with the life and ministry of the person of Jesus Christ. Our time does not allow us to look at all the various places but there are 12 of them in Matthew's gospel. The word may describe a, a balloon that you have purchased that is yet to be filled up. 
You inject helium, you inject oxygen into the balloon to pleruo it. This verb might describe a, a pitcher, an empty pitcher for water up here. It's, you know, you see the pitcher, but you don't see any water inside, and someone else comes along and pleruos the pitcher. They fill up what is lacking in the pitcher. That's the essence behind this word in the Greek, pleruo. Now, the point here from Jesus himself, is that rather than setting aside or even abrogating or abolishing or, heaven forbid, rather than sabotaging the very word of God through the prophets of old, the prophets and the Psalms, the writings of Moses, Jesus' ministry was all about filling it up, not setting it aside, not damaging or destroying it. Jesus came to fill it up. Fill it up for us. In fact, wasn't this Jesus' own point at the very end of the letter or the gospel that Luke writes? To a pair of disillusioned disciples, Jesus himself says on the road to Emmaus, just after his crucifixion and resurrection, he says in Luke 24, 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that Everything written about me in the law and of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be pleruod, fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Listen. Out of more than 450 biblical promises and prophecies concerning God's appointed Messiah, Jesus, scholars generally agree that more than 300 of them were fulfilled in his first coming. That's staggering. And the rest of these will be fulfilled. Not one promise of God will fall away. All the rest will be fulfilled in his next coming. Are you ready for it? Are you looking for it? Be ready for it. In fact, several of these important prophecies are mentioned right here in Matthew's gospel. See, the ministry of Jesus Christ filled in, in vivid colors of grace and goodness, the black and white outlines of the Hebrew scriptures. It shows us, in fact, it makes it pop, the prophecy pop in the life of Jesus. Now, Graham Goldsworthy is a contemporary Australian American evangelical pastor. That's hard to say. He has said that the meaning of of all the scriptures is actually unlocked in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we know that. A lot of people don't get that. Let me say it again, because it's a very significant statement. You ever opened the Bible and said, I have no idea what this is really talking about? He said, the meaning of all the scriptures is unlocked by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not that every verse is talking about the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. They don't all talk about that. But their ultimate meaning and significance is unlocked by his life, his death, and his resurrection. In other words, friends, the point of every jot and tittle That is, of every dot and iota, as the ESV puts it, 
The point of every pen stroke on every page of the Bible is to point us back to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the meaning of the scriptures. He is the one that we are to behold and to embrace and to enjoy. The Lord Jesus Christ himself. Or as I've put it this year, the message of the Bible is the mission of the manger. The message of the Bible is the mission of the manger. The great 19th century bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, everybody knows J.C. Ryle, stated it very well in a classic formula, stating the Old Testament is the gospel in bud, the New Testament is the gospel in full flower. The Old Testament is the gospel in blade, and the New Testament is the gospel in full ear. What is concealed in the old is revealed in the new. Jesus, one author said, is the man who is the book. The writer of Hebrews puts it differently, stating in Hebrews 1 verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And he is the radiance of the glory of God. Friend, you want to know what God is like? What God is all about? Look no further than the manger and the baby. Look no further than that gruesome and bloody Friday when Christ died for our sin. Jesus reveals the radiance of God. Come behold that wondrous mystery. The mystery of Christ. The man in the mystery in the ministry of Jesus Christ is the unavoidable conclusion. It is the ultimate culmination of hundreds of ancient promises and thousands of years of history. They all come crashing together just outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. This, in part, is the very meaning of the vital mission of the manger. That God the Father was keeping His Word by sending His Word in the likeness of human flesh and for sinful man. Now secondly, just in terms of specific context today, remember that the Sermon on the Mount, again Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we understand to be the Sermon on the Mount, contains the essence and the essential substance of Jesus' public teaching ministry. In fact, just a few verses before this sermon begins in Matthew 5, 1, the writer Matthew begins with a famous uh, statement in Matthew 4, 23, and he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now, you might have rushed right past that verse a hundred times. Because we like to think of Jesus as the one dying on the cross. I don't like to think of it, but I'm grateful that he did. But Jesus came, firstly, as a preacher of righteousness. A preacher of righteousness. Jesus was a preacher and a teacher as well as a savior to be savored. Jesus went around healing the sick. He went around touching the outcast. He went around raising the dead. But it was the dreaded disease of sin. Mankind's greatest misery and deadliest malady, summed up in a condition called unrighteousness. 
that Jesus Christ ultimately came to cure. He came to cure unrighteousness. So look, the Sermon on the Mount, as many others have rightly pointed out, is not so much a sermon about how people can get saved. To read the Sermon on the Mount as a manual for getting saved is to misread the Sermon on the Mount. It is about righteousness, but not a righteousness that we can perform on our own. Instead, it's a sermon about how saved people ought to live. How saved people ought to live their lives now by faith in the one who is truly righteous, who is truly holy, even God himself in the person of Christ. It is a sermon not about religion, but rather about real heavenly righteousness. The great, this great sermon, which is also recorded in Luke's gospel, if you didn't know that, Luke chapter 6, verses 17 to 49, also contains, I think in my Bible it says the Sermon on the Plains, but it's the same substance. In fact, others have suggested that Jesus preached this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount that we understand it to be, on numerous occasions throughout his three-year public ministry. And it drew a direct line from the very heart of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Law and the Prophets, directly to the point of Jesus' own coming to earth. In other words, Jesus says to anyone listening, your right and proper standing before a holy and high God is not at all predicated upon your work and your righteousness. Rather, it's predicated or founded upon my work and righteousness. That is the gospel. It may seem, when I say it that way, so simple, but it is so significant that there is nothing that you and I can do to earn our way to God, but God has earned it for us. Christ has accomplished the law and the prophets that we can enjoy by faith. There is a righteousness available to all today, but it's a righteousness that is received and not achieved. It is a righteousness received by faith and not achieved by your good works or mine. The gospel of the kingdom is about an inside-out sort of righteousness produced by the Spirit of Christ through faith in the work of Christ. Not about an external law-keeping superficiality that so many of us have tried to become experts at doing. Stop trying to earn God's favor and rest in the one who fully pleased the Father. Rest in Jesus. Stop striving and begin resting in Christ. This is, among other things, what makes Christianity truly a unique world religion. The resurrection for one, but also the fact that our God has accomplished redemption and righteousness for us. Not that we have to do some system of ritual, some system of religious deeds in order to appease God. No, God himself has, has stepped into the story and done it for us. That is the gospel. Friend, the Sermon on the Mount shows us, among other things, that the goal of the gospel, that is the sovereign plan of salvation designed by the Father in eternity past and accomplished by the Son in the present history when Christ came so many years ago and now continues to be applied life after life through faith in the agency of the Holy Spirit, that the gospel's goal, listen to this, are human beings who right now 
by a change in their internal nature that comes through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus' holy and satisfactory atonement actually love and do the will of God. Let me say that again without all the extra commentary. God's goal in the gospel is that you love Him and obey Him. But the problem is, there's not a one of us who can love Him and obey Him on our own. That's why Jesus was necessary. Jesus had to come to make us right with God, to give us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, that we might love and do the will of God. And I emphasize this because being a Christian means right now you are not somehow excused from loving and doing the will of God. No, you now have an ability that you never had before. You have a responsibility that you never could accomplish before to love and to do the will of God. That's what Jesus has unlocked for us. Not some fake it till you make it sort of Christianity, but a from the heart faith in Jesus. Part of what we see here is that God's kingdom is both defined by and characterized by righteousness. Righteousness. Doing the right thing. We don't do that. We can't do that. What is righteousness? This was God's plan and point all along. This was the point of the books of Moses and the prophets. The ceremonial, the civil, the moral laws contained therein. Some staggering number of 611 laws in total. This was the point. Pastor Joel Beakey comments that God did not change his righteous requirements when Jesus came. Instead, when Christ came, he filled up the jar of the law and the prophets and fulfilled all of its requirements. Jesus, listen, both declared the will of God and accomplished it. He fulfilled it. He performed it. And he invites us, even he summons us to follow in his way. He warned people. Jesus spoke more of hell than he did of heaven. You know that. Jesus warned people about the holy judgment of God to come. And then he uniquely, he did what only he could do as the perfect God and the perfect man. He went to the cross to satisfy it. The bar is not lower, friend, for the Christian than it was for the Jewish person. The bar is exactly the same standard. It's just that Christ has cleared the bar. And we participate in clearing the bar by faith in Jesus. By faith in Him. This is what Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 and following is really getting at. The writer of Hebrews says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, 
He said, this is out of Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, the Lord said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book, Verse 9 of Hebrews 10, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. God's righteousness was the very essence of the preaching laid out in the law and the preaching reminded by the prophets in the Old Testament. Over and over and over again, they called Israel, the nation of Israel, back to repentance, back to covenant fidelity, back to the Lord. And they kept rebelling. The law itself was given as a magnifying glass to reveal your brokenness and mine, to reveal our need of forgiveness. That is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 17 and following, This is what I mean. This is Paul to the Galatians, trying to preserve the gospel for that church. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, that is after God's promise to Abraham in its context, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For... If the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. What then of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, meaning Christ, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary, verse 20 says, implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned under the coming until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We are no longer under the law. We are now under the law of Christ by the Spirit. Again, listen to me carefully. The law was given not as an instrument of self-justification as the Pharisees and the scribes so often used it. In fact, Jesus says in John 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but it is they who speak about me, Jesus says to the scribes and the Pharisees. The law was never given as a means of self-justification, but rather as a means of self-examination. And when you self-examine, you see that you are broken and you are in need of forgiveness. The law exposed. The law condemned. The law, Paul says, brought death. But Christ gives life. Christ brings grace. The law guides to what Christ provides. 
Whatever the law teaches, whatever it commands, whatever it promises, Christ is the goal. Christ is the end, the fulfillment, which is uh, received by you and I by faith. It sounds astonishing because it is. It simply takes faith, but a faith that results in a new way, a new life, not lessening the commands, but living them out, not teaching other people that it's okay to shirk the will of God, but to love it and to do it because that is the blessed way. It's what Paul said in Romans 10 verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. As we close our message today, how are you and I to respond to so great an announcement of astonishingly good news and the fulfillment of Jesus Christ? Well, let me give you three ways, depending upon where you stand right now in terms of salvation, that you need to respond this morning. Number one, some of us here this morning need to personally respond And receive the gift of Christ's righteousness through repentance and faith. You need to receive righteousness for the very first time. Believing in the gospel means forever abandoning your own vain attempts at self-justification. At earning God's favor. You must abandon yourself in order to embrace Christ. That is the scandal of grace. It is is a scandal that announces to people, guess what? You're broken. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. But God has done all that's necessary. He's done it all. If you're here this morning and you've never embraced the salvation that Christ has come to fulfill, do so today. Let this Christmas be the first Christmas that it's not some some foreign concept, but actually Christmas is occurring in your very heart because Jesus comes to take up residence there. Accept him today. Romans 5, 19 came to my mind in my study this week. It says, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. What a glorious verse. Now to the one who works his wages, Paul says in Romans 4, 4, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. What a bargain. Sign me up. We have no righteousness on our own, but we have his righteousness by faith. If you have never Reach the end of your striving. Reach the end of being sick of your sin. Reach it right now. And reach out to Jesus. He wants to change you. Secondly, this morning, perhaps you have come to the end of yourself and you're trying to walk in a way, but you find it so incredibly hard. You're in good company. Some of us this morning need to walk according to the law of Christ by the power of the Spirit, and encourage others to do the same. We have been changed. Now we need to live like it. The Bible says, for God has done. That's the gospel. The gospel is not, hey guys, go do this and do that. The gospel is this, God 
has done, period. God has done it. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? So that we could live any old way we wanted to live? Absolutely not. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound, Paul says? Absolutely not. Why did God condemn sin in the flesh, meaning in Jesus's flesh at Calvary? He did it in order, verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And if that is not true of us, we will not be in God's presence. And if that is true of us, we have a radically new orientation to the rest of life. Jesus did not fill up the moral, legal demands, ceremonial demands of God's holy and righteous law in order to save a people who then live for themselves. No, we are to follow in his steps, as 1 Peter 2.21 says. Jesus has walked the way that you and I are called to follow in. That's the second response this morning. And then thirdly, some of us need to repent daily because we're forgetful people. Jesus says in verse 20 of Matthew 5, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me just pause for a moment and ask you, are you encouraging somebody else to break the commands of Christ? Is there some teaching that you are encouraging somebody to get into? that goes contrary to Scripture? Is there some activity that you're encouraging somebody to engage in or that you are engaging in that goes contrary to the law of Christ? Repent. Repent. We need to repent daily. Daily of the myriad of self-justifying works of religiosity. To the scads of of sin-justifying deeds of rebellion and cling to Christ and to Christ and His righteousness alone. Holiness is not only our position, it is to be our practice day in and day out. John Piper said the law of Christ is not a list, a new list of the behaviors without, but a new treasure and master within. We have a new heart, a heart with a holy king, and that king demands a holy life. And so what else would we do but respond in repentance? Because I don't know about you, but every day I wake up and I still have this body of flesh around me. I still have this attitude of sin within me. What else would we do but need to live each day, day in and day out, in a posture of repentance and trust in Jesus? That's why he came, first and foremost, to fulfill the law and the prophets. We were in big trouble unless Jesus came. But friends, he did come, and he didn't miss a thing. He always lived for the pleasure of his Father. He died on the cross, fulfilling the ceremonial law of Moses. And now he reigns to reign over our hearts, over this church today. Let's give him praise, and let's bring him glory as we live together. Amen? Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Almighty God and Father, what a joy it is to declare the gospel of Christ. He was made like us in the flesh in order that we might be made like him by faith 
in the power of the Spirit. Oh, Father, we thank you for so great a salvation. Help us to be grateful and help us to walk faithfully and humbly accordingly. In the name of our Savior and King, we pray. Amen.